Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Today on Climate One, we're looking back at the top energy and climate headlines of 2013. I'm Greg Dalton. Welcome, everyone. In the last 12 months, a lot has happened. The plug was pulled on a nuclear power plant, and a growing number of Californians decided to plug in their cars. California's cap and trade program got up and running, and Governor Brown inked several deals with other states and countries. Nationally, President Obama introduced his climate action plan. Globally, energy markets grappled with the impacts of the boom in hydraulic fracturing or fracking for oil and natural gas. Over the next hour, we'll talk about these stories and more with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. We're pleased to be joined by four experts involved in shaping and covering California's energy future. Lauren Faber is West Coast Political Director at the Environmental Defense Fund. Amy Jaffe is Executive Director of Energy and Sustainability at UC Davis. Andrew McAllister is commissioner of the California Energy Commission, and Craig Miller is science editor at KQED. Please welcome them to Climate One. <laughs> I'd like to begin by kind of throwing the Lego on the ground and just seeing what we can we can make of it, and go down and ask you uh, what you think are some of the top headlines, energy stories of 2013, and then we'll talk about them, and we'll talk about both on the transportation side and the electricity side. Amy Jaffe, what are a couple of the headlines of 2013? Well, I, I think the big events in, in 2013, of course, in the Middle East, it's, it's now the uh, possible uh, diplomatic deal between the United States and Iran might change the profile for the oil market over time. Um, I think the air pollution story out of China is also going to be a big global uh, a game changer. Mm-hmm in terms of how uh, that country moves forward and what that means for um, global uh, climate policy. And uh, here in the California, I think, you know, the, cap and, the beginning of the cap-and-trade program um, really is the whole world is watching to see, you know, is this a place um, that can make it successful, integrating it with uh, different regulations for power and vehicles. And if it's successful in California, uh, I think that it will be a model that other countries are interested in. The Chinese are interested. I was just in Beijing. The Chinese are interested in how California forged a, you know, Clean Air Act and then moved forward uh, to other kinds of environmental policies. Uh, Europe is having a little bit of a breakdown of some of the cap-and-trade systems they put in place, so they'd be interested to see what happens here. Andrew McAllister, highlights for 2013. Yeah, well, um <clears throat> Excuse me. I think uh, in, in I have more of a California focus. I really appreciate the global perspective. Um, California is, again, in a position of leadership uh, for reasons uh, that I think you may, named a few of them. Uh, we have uh, the electric system with some challenges. We have San Onofre off now, and we know it's going to now stay off. So we need to plan for uh, maintaining reliability and enhancing reliability. That's the nuclear power plant. That's Santa the, Onofre, nu- right? yeah, the uh, San Onofre Nuclear Generation Station. Um, and so that's, uh, I think, uh, enabling and forcing a discussion about how we maintain reliability. At the same time, we uh, plan for a much lower carbon electricity future. At the same time, on the transportation side, we have a, a very active overlapping of the electricity sector and the transportation sector with electrification uh, very much scaling up. Still small, but scaling up very quickly, electrification of the transportation system. 
Um, so between that and uh, Governor Brown's leadership on the climate issue and really reaching out uh, to other states and other nations, uh, the West Coast, China, and other places to provide California, California's leadership and contribution, uh, I think uh, these discussions really take on even greater urgency. So everybody's watching what we're doing here in California, and it's both an exciting and challenging time, I think. Lauren Faber, as a person working for one of the largest environmental organizations in the country, what do you see as the highlights of 2013? Yeah, thank you. You know, as <clears throat> as you look back on 2013, particularly I focus on California as well, though what California has been doing certainly has much wider implications. Um, I, I really think of it as a marquee year for climate change and clean energy. As Amy touched on, you know, this is the first year of the cap-and-trade program, and as what we've seen is, you know, now for the first time, businesses in California are facing um, an explicit cost to emitting climate change pollution for the first time through a carbon price. Now <clears throat> businesses are faced with certain decisions that they weren't necessarily faced with as explicitly before, and they're faced with, as well, a firm limit on the amount of emissions allowed into the system. That is that has never happened before. And so California is really now at the forefront of, is this going to work? After a full year, we've seen um, a set of five auctions through the program that have collected in, that has collected over $500 million um, in proceeds. And now that allows for a dialogue of what should we be doing with those funds? How should California be investing in a clean energy future to really further the goals of AB 32 and ensure that communities are protected from the impacts of climate change and that all communities, including the most vulnerable communities, are directly benefiting from the program. So that is something that really is going to have much wider implications. What we're seeing in the early days is that businesses are finding it reasonable to comply, that the the program has been functioning, the sky has not fallen. Um, and I think that what we've also seen is the, the, the courts continue to grant California side on the part of California when faced with challenges by by opposition to AB 32, as well as um, AB, or 2013 ushered in a new generation of legislators in Sacramento, a generation of you know new electeds that we really didn't necessarily know where the chips would fall, where the power balance would fall on the environment. And despite some you know heavy industry lobbying throughout this year, it seems that the legislatures really recognize the economic opportunity and the importance of protecting communities that they have green green lighted a series of programs that you know provide billions of dollars of incentives for clean energy in California. Craig Miller. So headlines: uh, fracking, fracking, and fracking. I guess I would go with those three, uh, which is interesting because this is something that didn't used to be a California story so much. You know, this is something going on on the other side of the country or up in the up in the upper Midwest. Um, but now that there's talk of a, a possible boom in the, the so-called Monterey Shale, this this huge deposit that extends all the way from um, Monterey County uh, down into the into deep into the San Joaquin Valley, and all of the oil, not gas, that might reside there might be recoverable. Um, there's, you know, fear of fracking is is rampant. Um, and so it seems like the, the environmental discussion in California and the energy discussion, you know, have, is, has been a big shift toward that uh, as they try to, to, to develop our regulations and figure out how we're going to how we're going to keep a handle on that. Also interesting, I think, uh, was this this birthing process of the nation's first uh, most comprehensive, I guess, is the best way to put it, cap and trade program. Uh, and also the, how we're going to manage all of these renewable sources of energy uh, that are developing pretty rapidly and get them integrated onto the electrical grid, um, which is not a trivial matter. Well, let's pick up on, on that central tension of California being a green leader, as we've heard, and California potentially being on the verge of a boom in, in supply of fossil fuels. Can California do both. Is there a contradiction uh, in that? Andrew McAllister, you're on the Energy Commission. I mean, can California be green and brown at the same time? Uh, well, so we uh, we have carbon content uh, um, goals for the state, and they're uh, fairly aggressive. So if you actually look at it from that perspective, um, the renewable portfolio standard um, and, and limiting the conversation for now with the elect- to the electric sector, um, where if you count the molecules, uh, we don't have a lot of room for, you know, scaling up of fossil-based generation. 
uh, without bringing on, and I'll caveat that with saying, without bringing on some form of carbon sequestration. If we're going to burn the stuff or we're going to use it to generate electricity, we need to do something with the carbon other than emit it into the air or we're not going to meet our uh, renewable portfolio standard uh, or we're not going to meet our, our carbon, carbon content standard goals for the long term. So there's a question of sort of uh, we can get there for 2030, getting there for 2050 is, is, is going to require uh, a heavier lift, and those are much, much deeper goals. Um, but certainly the issue of fracking, I think California, from my perspective, is taking uh, a cautious uh, but, I think, uh, balanced approach in, in that um, the legislation that recently passed is, requires the Department of Oil, Gas, and Geothermal Resources to develop regulations to essentially require reporting and monitoring um, for any sort of fracking-related uh, drilling that goes on. Um, and gives voice to some of the communities in those places. Uh, so I absolutely agree that uh, while there are lots of questions about what's actually there and how much is recoverable and what that play actually looks like, and, and by play, sort of the, the Monterey Shale uh, resource, uh, it's not going to look like Pennsylvania or other parts of, this, of the U.S. It's really going to be its own thing, and it still uh, has a lot of questions associated with it. But certainly, um, California has not said no to exploiting that resource but wants to do it in a responsible way, and that's what regulations and the regulatory process are for, to make sure that we get to a point that essentially works with our uh, robust democracy and our democratic process in California to get to a point that basically satisfies the stakeholders but doesn't completely, uh, you know, take it off the table, that does it in a way that's responsible. Amy Jaffe, you came recently from Texas. You're an oil and gas expert. How do you see California's ambitions as a clean and green state with all its potential oil underneath our ground? Well, we, we have a tension here in California because we're also a state with lots and lots of automobiles. Um, and we're transitioning to dual fuel or other kinds of uh, technologies, EVs. We have the aspiration to go to hydrogen. But the bottom line is right now we all have vehicles that run mostly on oil-based fuel. So the uh, challenge we have is uh, how to moderate uh, meeting the needs we have with our current vehicles but still maintaining a pathway forward to transition to something cleaner. And that, that's going to be a bit of a challenge. It's a challenge because we have the incumbent infrastructure of gasoline stations, and those are readily available. We all have range anxiety if we're going to use something other than gasoline. Um, and getting the public to shift over just in their thinking is a big challenge. Now, in terms of the shale in the state, um, I think that people need to understand that every geological shale play is different, and actually there's some plays that aren't even the shale level, but, you know, maybe it's some other formation uh, under the ground, and it requires different experimental technology. Um, fracking has become this universal word, but it actually has a technical meaning. The technical meaning is I'm going to take water, and I'm going to put it, shoot it underground at very high pressure uh, to create small, tiny fissures and rocks way under the ground, and then I'm going to put small particles of sand or some other kind of propent to hold those tiny little cracks open so the oil or gas can flow back up the engineering designed well. Now, we've been doing that with vertical wells for decades and decades. And now the change is that we're able to do it with horizontal wells as well. But those technologies that have been tried in the Monterey have not been terribly successful. Mm -hmm. And the companies here are having a lot of difficulty. So even when you hear representatives from the oil industry say that it's the environmental regulation and all this stuff that's holding them back, my opinion is that is not actually what's holding them back. What's holding them back is they haven't actually quite cracked well the puzzle for how to technically produce the stuff here in California. And because everybody understands well the shales that are being done in Texas in the South Eagleford and soon in the western Texas in, in a play you're going to hear more and more about called the Wolf Camp, um, because it can be done there easily, people understand the geology, and, um, and, and it can be produced at a fairly inexpensive rate compared to the current price of oil, it's going to look like all the investment dollars are going to Texas because Texas is a place that understands it's not good to regulate industry. Uh, but that's not really it. You know, the bottom line is if you could, you know, come into California and know how to do the Monterey and have it be highly producible, you know, people would figure out how to do it. But I think that we really do need to ask ourselves, because any drilling, even geothermal drilling, any drilling that involves having a cement casing 
and you're going to put chemicals onto the ground, right? Um, and, and here in the state of California, by the way, we don't do a lot of fracking um, with water. We actually use acid and other kinds of things to do the fracking, right? You know, anytime I'm going to use a production system where I'm, you, you know, counting on, you know, steel and cement not to fail, uh, there's going to be some proportion of, of, of challenge. And I think we have to ask ourselves, are there places in the state where we just don't want to have drilling? Right? And, and I think, you know, there are places, for example, in New York, there's still a lot of debate, but I think the debate is clearly over. There's not going to be oil drilling in places that are connected to the New York City water table in any kind of way possible. You know, there needs to be sort of like a, a safety fence of where there's going to be drilling in New York related to so many millions of people being dependent on drinking water. And here in the state where we have places where agriculture is so important, right, I think we really need to be wise. Um, and it doesn't matter what they're doing in Ohio or Pennsylvania or Texas. There's a lot of agriculture in Texas. And, you know, some of it's happening safely, I'm sure. But, you know, here in the state where we put such a high value on certain kinds of industries and certain kinds of recreation, we, we probably do want to think carefully about where do we already have a lot of industry, where, where we might as well continue to drill there in, in, in a safe and sound way, and where are there places where we really actually don't want the industry to extend into. As a former Texan, you went native pretty quickly here in California. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I used to say this in Texas, too. Let me tell you something for those of you in California listening and for my former friends who say, why did you move to California from Texas? Right? We have this idea in this country that it's okay, that it's okay to have poor air quality for children growing up in Houston, and that it's okay to have water get contaminated in Texas, right? Or have, you know, offshore accidents that, that damage beaches in Texas, that that's okay because it's in Texas, right? But I can tell you as a person who lives in Texas, even for the people who feel it's okay in Texas, for those of us who raised their children in Texas and had to deal with asthma and had to deal with other consequences, it's not okay for 250 million cars to drive around the United States leaving all the pollution in Texas and feel that's okay. Right? That was never okay. So what we really need to do is have policies that limit or, or limit the inconvenience and the, and the, the polluting effects of, of using this fuel until we can transfer to something else. And we have to be realistic about how long it's going to take us to transfer to something else because it can't be done overnight because we have 250 million liquid cars on the road. Let's talk about electric cars. One of the key stories of, of 2013, uh, Tesla, uh, if you asked me a year ago, I thought, Tesla, I'm not sure they would have made it. Their stock is up 400% uh, this year. Uh, they, they've made uh, electric cars sexy. They're, they're an example of, of getting off of fossil fuel-based cars, at least depending if you don't live in a, in a uh, uh, coal state. Craig Miller, you know, tell us about broadly about the impact of, of Tesla this year as, as a story. Well, Tesla, I think, is a symbol uh, of where we can go with electric car technology. Um, obviously, it's going to be a, a blend of all electric cars, plug-in electric cars, hydrogen fuel cell cars. If you went to the L.A. Auto Show, this year was a surprising uh, number of new introductions or future introductions with, with hydrogen fuel cells. A lot of people thought that techn technology was dead. Now it seems like it's getting a second wind, and, and Arnold's hydrogen highway uh, maybe may actually happen after all. Coming you back. Yes. yes, right. He'll be Bach. And... Uh, <laughs> And, 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 uh, but it's, but we have a long, long way to go. Um, you know, Jeff Greenblatt at, uh, at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab put out a very interesting study recently about what it would take, actually take, to achieve California's 2050 greenhouse gas emissions goal of 80% reduction, you know, uh, and, uh, and, and it would, he thinks, we'd have to basically electrify about half. You know, we'd have to get, we'd have to get, uh, we'd, excuse me, I'm conflating that with something else he said. He said we would have to have about 50% renewable electricity sources in order to get there and, and 80 or 90%, you know, um, of the transportation fleet would have to be, you know, either electrified or some other form of, of zero emissions vehicle. This is a huge, huge task, uh, compared to where we are now. The state has just gone into a, uh, a coalition with, uh, with seven other states to try to get three 
2.3 million uh, zero emissions vehicles on the road by 2025, 20, I think it is. Uh, and even that, when you look at you look at that, even though that those eight states control about a quarter of the automotive market in California, there's a huge replacement market out there. You know, there's all these cars that are on the road, these, and, and they're going to continue to be on the road, uh, and they're still burning gas. So there's a long road ahead. Lauren Faber, you also were at the Los Angeles Auto Show. Uh, hydrogen's back. Yeah, it was a, it was a real, it's my first time at an auto show, actually, so I went down to L.A. a little <laughs> early for Thanksgiving, <clears throat> and... Went around to, I mean, a, a bunch of the, the different car companies were showcasing specifically their hybrids, their plug-in electrics, and then I stopped over at Hyundai to see their hydrogen fuel cell um, uh, SUV, and they were touting a recent law passed in California that was going to enable an increase in these types of vehicles by um, increasing fueling stations across across California. There were a series of cars that were being marketed across a number of different, you know, towards a number of different sectors, not just not just young and not just excessively wealthy um, as well, that these could be primary cars for individuals. But it does beg a question of how do you then integrate these cars if we really are going to get where we need to go? How do you integrate these cars into the grid? There's a lot of work being done in California to modernize the grid, to be able to upgrade it, to take advantage of the fact that that ratepayers spent millions of dollars, if not more, putting in smart meters. And so what are we going to use that for? And that's really at a place that we're going to be next year. 2014 is a moment where not only are we discussing how we replace lost capacity from the nuclear generating station, but if we really are going to support an increase in plug-in electric vehicles. So this is going to be a very exciting year for that, but it requires the utilities, for example, to really be thinking about new business models. I know that Commissioner McAllister thinks about this a lot in his day job, um, and the IPA report that is coming out is going to be talking about that as well. As far as the LBNL study, the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab study on what California needs to do to meet its 2050 goals, if anything, that sort of reaffirmed what we already know, which is that we are on track to meet our current existing required targets and that we need to extend the programs that we have both in the electricity sector and in the transportation sector in order to continue meeting. We're on track to meet the 2020 target, of, uh, uh, but, but, but we don't know if we're on track really to meet the 2050 target. I mean, even the Air Board has come out recently and said, we have no idea how to make policy for 2050. It's just too far away. We need a midterm goal, like around 2030, something that we can actually, like, formulate policy around, you know, because we have some idea what the technology is going to be then. And that's a really exciting place for us to be. That means that we are sort of from here to 2020, assume this program is in place, we are going to reach our targets. But in order to be serious about 2050, now is the time to actually start talking about a midterm target around the time of 2030. So that's going to be a very exciting time in California in the year to come. Let's talk about these other states, because California was uh, uh, linking arms with uh, New Mexico and other states. Those other states had elections, and the the governors ran the other direction. Uh, California has stayed the course. What's the importance of some of the things that happened in the last couple of months with linking up with Quebec, with uh, the other West Coast states in British Columbia? Uh, Andrew McAllister, what's that going to do for California? Well, so I want to build on something uh, that Lauren and Craig both said, uh, which in the transportation sector, you know, and just generally with our long-term carbon reduction goals, you know, I think uh, the, the, there are a number of agencies that work on this, and we won't get in the alphabet soup here, but um, the Air Resources Board is, the, is responsible for it, the, the primary agency responsible for implementing Assembly Bill 32. Uh, which is sort of the umbrella legislation that's enabling uh, a bunch of different. There's offspring legislation main as well, climate law, yeah. main climate law here in California. Um, but as as a policy matter, um, for example, with uh, transportation, you know there are lots of technologies, and we're not in the business of picking the winners. We're in the business of enabling the marketplace. And I think it's very important to acknowledge that and to build partnerships with the various manufacturers, industry players, uh, local jurisdictions, all of these. Uh, up and down the sort of food chain of the decision, understand what customers, what consumers want, and try to develop policy that pushes, that, that handholds that very well. So we have, on the one hand, we have uh, hydrogen fuel cells. And who which, wants hydrogen? I mean, well, so if, if you really, if you I do mean, the well so, well, so I mean, it is definitely expensive. an earlier it stage. It takes a lot of energy to make. There's no infrastructure. Well, so, so it has network issues. It has all sorts of challenges. There's no question about that. But if you do, if you are serious about counting the carbon molecules, you do need, as Amy said, you need a non-fossil alternative that 
can potentially check off all the boxes that consumers want, right? And it's not clear which batch of technologies or which which percentage of all the ingredients to make this soup is going to really be the one that wins out. And so the the policy decision across all the agencies has been to enable as many as we can that look promising. And certainly fuel cells are on the front end. They're an earlier, they're an earlier mode as far as what you would call market transformation. Electrics are further down the road. Tesla's business model started out 12, 13, 14 years ago, developing IP, go start with the high end and the sports car market, and then move it mainstream. And they've really been rigorous, I think, about following that business model, and it's kind of paying off now, certainly questions. But the electrics are further down the road, need to scale up aggressively still. You know, not We don't know what that's going to look like. But I think the, the point is that we have a bunch of eggs and we have a bunch of baskets, mm-hmm. and we don't – and, and that's, that's not a bad place to be at this moment, right? So – that policy environment here in California is fairly well fleshed out. There, we have several important agencies working together, not only on the transportation front, but also on the electric reliability front. We are moving towards a distributed generation. We're moving towards large-scale renewables to meet the RPS goals. Uh, we have challenges with San Onofre nuclear generation station being off. Beyond that, we have a bunch of once-through-cooled power plants that are going to be um, – their, their licenses are essentially going to be expiring, and we're going to have to make decisions about which and w- whether and which uh, of those facilities to repower with generally natural gas. So um, there, are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of challenges coming up that are forcing this discussion now. Uh, and as Lauren said, uh, it's really this is the moment that if we're going to really chart the course towards this low-carbon future, we can make infrastructure investment decisions now that uh, will be with us for a while. Uh, and so, so we're doing that in California, and I think a lot of the West Coast states and other other states across the West uh, are looking at us to see what we do. The Pacific Coast Collaborative is a place where um, uh, it's it's uh, actually it includes uh, British Columbia, and then uh, Oregon, Washington, California. Um, just signed a pact to really focus and hold hands on the long-term climate imperative. So it's very, I think that's very important to send a message to the rest of the country and, and, and even globally across the Pacific that uh, we now have a block that's not just California. But we actually have political commitment at the highest levels to take climate seriously and to proactively develop the kinds of solutions that we're all going to need. Craig Miller, is that more, more than a political photo op for the governors? Is there real substance there in this West Coast thing? You know, the, I yes. think there is. <laughs> Depends on which one you're talking about because there have been several initiatives. But if you're talking about the new Pacific Coast initiative that includes uh, British Columbia as well, and basically the entire entire West Coast, Oregon, Washington, uh, they came together to try to kind of get on the same page at least. Um, I think there's real, you know, good intent there. Um, the problem is that the plan is, that, you know, I think about, you know, a mile wide and about an inch deep. You know, it's like a it's, – it's kind of all over the map, you know, in terms of the different measures, that things it would try to do, targets it would set, programs it would put in place. But there's no mechanism to fund it specifically. Um, there's no uh, – there's no – nothing legally binding about it. Uh, it's all just, you know, because we happen to have friendly governors, you know, in office right now, you know, one change like we saw in – Arizona or New Mexico could change the game dramatically. Um, and, uh, and, and it's pretty much left up to each individual state. You know, even if they go about syncing up their emissions targets in this area or that area, it's kind of up to each state how they're going to get there. Um, so there's a lot, you know, it's, to me, the, you know, the jury is still out on whether there's, there's real substance there. Well, well, actually, just, I would point out just really quickly, though, that, uh, sorry, um, just to say, that uh, that's true, that, that the states are ultimately responsible for what they do within the states. And part of this is a response to lack of federal leadership. We really, uh, we're, we're having to go down this route because there's not a federal policy. That's true. So that's true. We're, we're, I think we're showing a lot of leadership. And to quote Governor that. Brown in one of our interviews, he said, this is a really big deal, meaning this, this new initiative. And if, if people want to pretend it's not, they don't know what the hell they're talking about. So. <laughs> well, and you're right. I mean, there will always be elections. There will always yeah. be the chance that any policy from a conservative or from a Democrat are going to be undone by its, their successor. Could be. So that is always something. That doesn't mean that the person in power should not be doing everything he or she can to be promoting and, you know, installing some of the most ambitious policies on climate change and clean energy as possible. So the fact that we have that up and down the West Coast is an amazing opportunity. And the fact that Governor Brown and the other governors are taking advantage of it and not letting it slip by them 
is very important. But, I would it say, has to be, listen, it has, to be market, it has to be market realistic. And we see that with the renewable fuel standard for the federal standard, right, where we had this pipe dream about, you know, how much fuel was going to be, ought to be produced no from cellulosic, you know, materials. <laughs> no pun and, uh, yeah, really. And, and, you know, in the end, we didn't make it. And now we have this huge dislocation with the EPA having to keep rescinding, rescinding. Um, um, these this targets. is about corn blended with gasoline. Mm-hmm. They're lowering. Correct. Okay. Right. So, so we're not going to be able to to uh, uh, get beyond the 10 percent that we were doing with corn-based ethanol. Um, it, it's not. I think the state here in California is also going to have difficulty meeting biofuels targets. A lot of money has been put into this field, and it's not really producing um, what was expected in the time frame that was expected. And there are some. Interesting, promising things that might happen over time, um, you know, uh, because the uh, oil sector is moving towards um, having this surplus of natural gas in the United States. It's opening the opportunity to put natural gas in heavy trucking and in marine, mm-hmm. right, which has an which will be essential. Right, which has an immediate air pollution uh, benefit. But what it means is if the infrastructure for that fueling goes in place, then someday – um, one could gasify biomass um, and possibly put gassed, gaseous form, you know, biomass into, into vehicle transportation. I mean, Jeff, I want to ask you about uh, Andrew McAllister mentioned lack of federal leadership. President Obama this year, 2013, we're talking about energy highlights at Climate One, uh, came out with a climate plan. What grade would you give the president's climate plan? Um, I think the president's climate plan is pretty weak. Um, and, and, and I think that part of it has to do with, you know, here in the state of California, people are willing to put up with a high level of inconvenience because they have a commitment to environmental causes. Um, but that is not the norm around the United States. And, and people are waiting for some technolo- technology to fall out of the sky. You know, we, we want... Elon Musk and his group to just come up with a doohickey, we're going to use it, you know, and then the problem is going to be completely solved, and we're not looking for what, you know, we are going to do as individuals, and, you know, you can have a smart meter in your house, but if you're plugging in your car at 6 p.m. on peak, you know, you're not going to do anything to help the fact that you have a smart meter, right? So you're going to know that you're spending extra for electricity and putting a burden on the grid. So doesn't help if you have range anxiety. Right? So, so some of it's behavioral based. And, and that is why I think, you know, it's hard to make a federal policy and it's hard to make a federal policy that will go quickly. Now, the one thing that, um, I can't really say that, well, the president supported, right, was this idea of having regulations that mean that our cars need to get higher fuel efficiency. Right? And this is going sort of better than expected. It's a very strong tool. Any kind of tool that actually lowers your use of fossil fuels is a better tool than um, hoping that people are going to spring eternal because even switching to an EV is not useful if you're trying to eliminate natural gas demand if all your electricity is being generated with natural gas, which a lot of the state's electricity is being generated with natural gas. So we have to be realistic. I have a little optimism because I'm a university professor and I deal with 18-year-olds all day, (laughs) right? And the millennial generation is much more willing to the, there's the, the shared economy. So in the shared economy, I don't actually have to have a car because I can either share a car or zip car or not even use a car, and I might be willing to walk. I might be willing to do everything in such a distance that, you know, I'm going to live urbanly densely and I'm not going to need as much energy to do it. Um, but, but with all due respect to this generation, they have a lot of gadgets to plug in. <laughs> I, I want to get you also on the, the toxic politics of energy. You mentioned that when politicians, Tea Party politicians and others make comments about energy, how that affects uh, the politics of energy in America. You know, let me talk about that. There's a great business scholar at uh, the business school at UC Davis, Don Palmer, and he's written an award-winning book on, called Accidental Wrongdoing. Right. So, so how do we wind up with accidents like the Macondo uh, or, or, or challenges, uh, corporate challenges, where we find out, you know, corruption or, you know, made, uh, made off in some of these, you know, Wall Street scandals? How do we wind up with that? Um, and one of the things that the academic research shows is that when entities get in a com- competitive relationship with state agencies, uh, by state agencies I mean could be the federal government, could be the state government. Um, 
it causes people to, you know, into this sort of accidental momentum. So, so, and if you think about it, it makes sense. So I believe, you know, in Texas and, and other states, you get these states that filed a petition, you know, calling on the states to, you know, uh, defang the EPA's uh, 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 over-regulation of, of shale production. Well, Governor Perry in Texas called for abolishing the EPA. He'd right? like to <laughs> abolish the EPA. Now, here's how this goes, okay? So now I work for a company, and I have a, 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 you know, take a company like Chevron that's put in this huge program for high reliability training, right? And But the governor of Texas, I got all these employees in Texas, and the governor of Texas is saying we should abolish the EPA, and he's trying to defang, you know, the Texas mm-hmm. EPA, right? So now I'm an executive in an oil company, and I'm telling my staff to make sure they follow all these EPA regs and do everything very carefully, and they second-guess it now. Because politicians are telling them that the EPA is stupid. And we know technically better how to do this. We know it's safe. Right? So now, I'm not even willing to listen to the health and safety experts from my own company. Now I think that I, the guy turning the widget, I know better about what's safe and not safe and what's necessary and not necessary than everybody. So I do something wrong and we have an accident. And, you know, this pattern where we where we where we decide that there's some competition between jobs and environmental protection. This is a stupid idea. Mm-hmm. This is why we keep having accidents, <laughs> right? And we need to get out of this competitive political framework where somehow the social good is anti-jobs, right? Because that's not really true, right? It's not really true. You have to have proper regulation of markets, Otherwise, you have financial crises that, that kill jobs. You know, the, if the American car industry had accepted these higher cafe standards in 2001 after September 11, when it would have been politically expedient to have done it instead of setting lobbyists against it, they wouldn't have lost all those sales in 2007 and 2008 that caused the bankruptcies, that caused all the jobs to be lost in the first place. So there's this, there's this messaging that comes out of Washington that's not helpful. And we, the public, are smarter than this. We, we need to stand up and say we care about both things and we want it to be done in a way that both things are protected. Amy Jaffe is executive director of the Energy and Sustainability Program at UC Davis. Our other guests today at Climate One are Craig Miller, science editor at KQED, Lauren Faber from the Environmental Defense Fund, and Andrew McAllister, commissioner on the California Energy Commission. I'm Greg Dalton. We have not talked about water. We're going to get to uh, audience questions in just a little bit. Craig Miller, this could be the, one of the driest years on uh, record in California. Uh, water and energy are very connected. Uh, what are some of the big water stories, if any, of 2013? Well, I think uh, a lot, there's been a lot of water anxiety lately because last year was dry. Uh, the year before that did a nice job of filling up the reservoirs, but now we pretty much used that. There isn't this what they call carryover storage that we depend on that's, you know, from the, the snowpack, which provides so much of the state's water uh, to get us through the dry summers. And if, if we have another uh, really dry winter all the way through, and so far we are, uh, th- there's, there's going to be some real anxiety come, come spring. Um, the, and uh, when this happens, it, it affects not only just the water supply per se, but it also affects energy and it affects what we pay for energy. There was a study done by the Pacific Institute, for example, that uh, the last three-year drought we had, utilities, all, all of a sudden the hydropower wasn't there that they were counting on. Uh, and about 12% of our electricity in California comes from some kind of hydropower. And they had to substitute uh, so much natural gas uh, to make up for that lost energy that it ended up, according to the Pacific Institute, uh, costing uh, people – in sum, about more than a billion dollars in, in, in extra utility uh, electricity costs during that during that period. So there's a real there's some real implications, and also because to the degree that that power plants have traditionally used water to cool themselves, that's changing too. Uh, the, the landscape is changing there, um, the, bringing up some some real concerns about what they they now call this water energy nexus. Andrew McAllister. Yeah, so uh, a couple of comments. Um, so those are great points, and I'll just just add to that <clears throat> that on the demand side, 
Actually, so this is climate one discussion, right? So on the demand side, climate also has big impacts. And as we, you know, in California, we accept the climate science. We really don't have any issues with the knowledge that it is coming and that we will see changes. If you're in the Inland Empire down in Riverside County or in San Bernardino, someplace where the weather uh, is going to get more extreme, it's going to also affect the demand side. You're going to have more air conditioning load and you're going to have a lot more demands on the, the power system. Um, so that's that's one. <clears throat> and the other uh, thing I wanted to say... Um, just has to do with um, the long-term impacts of climate um, on uh, on just not having as much snow up in the mountains, and it's it's the timing of the runoff. So mm-hmm. demand is now no longer going to mesh with when we have the resources right. as well. So that is also um, a, a, a stress on the electric uh, the electricity system uh, writ large. And so you know, I think uh, again we go back to the need to have this conversation for long-term planning. Get the agencies, uh, that's the California Independent System Operator, uh, the Energy Commission, the Public Utilities Commission, really working together with a long-term strategy looking towards 2050. And, uh, again, you know, we're, we're, um, we're in the, we're, I think we're in a moment right now where we really do have a very good policy alignment across the agencies and with our elected officials. And it's an opportunity to get some of this stuff right, to have fairly deep conversations. That's happening, and that's why I'm very encouraged. And this is in very sharp contrast to the federal situation that Amy just talked about. Um, and not that it's perfect in California by any stretch, but I think we're having the conversations, and we're at least not in denial. Uh, San Diego recently approved a $3 billion project over 30 years for a desalination plant uh, to desalinate water. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a water energy connection. Is oh, yeah. California ready for more desalination plants, which use a lot of electricity? Um, well, I, you know, I, I until recently lived in San Diego and definitely uh, was uh, not involved directly in that project, but certainly aware of it. Um, desalination uh, takes a lot of uh, electricity, and uh, it just so happens that the site for that desalination plant is right there next to an existing power plant, and that's not an accident. Um, part of it was, was uh, right-to-way and, and sort of land availability, but part of it was reliable power to actually run uh, the reverse osmosis. Um, so I think it remains to be seen. You know, the the water. I do not purport to be an expert on water economics, uh, and it gets quite complicated. Um, and it's certainly not a full market based market based system. Um, but uh, I do think that a lot of folks uh, up and down the West Coast certainly are looking at that plant uh, in Carlsbad and. Um, Waiting, sort of waiting to see how it pans out, and when, and I know the city is quite committed to it, and the the you know whether consumers are willing to sort of go down that route and and see water cost increases, I think remains to be seen. Um, but we do, we are going to have a supply problem, and we have to figure out either on the demand side or on the supply side. Uh, get ourselves enough water. Uh, you know, the demand side is also a resource, as it is in, in energy. So if you can reduce demand, that's really the cheapest and the best thing you can do. Um, but there's a big infrastructure system that we have to make the right investments in, and a lot of people are looking at that desal plant to see if that's one of the right ones. Amy Jaffe, you have a paper out recently about unburnable carbon and the impact uh, <laughs> of this so-called carbon bubble on the stock prices of fossil fuel companies. Tell us what the conclusion was. Well, so we just uh, uh, published the paper today, and what we found was that there's already been um, $27 billion lost that came off the stock um, back in 2009 when the first two-degree science articles came out. And so... An article in the scientific journal saying the world should not go beyond two degrees Celsius of, of total warming since the industrial <coughs> era began. Correct. So some later uh, 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 analysts have... Um, and even in some later articles, they've assessed that some high proportion um, of the fossil fuels uh, that are, you know, in, in the balance sheets of, of different companies, and some of them are national oil companies, and some of them are the sort of household name companies that we're used to, the Exxon Mobiles and so forth. Um, some people have predicted, well, you know, 50% or more of, uh, of, of the carbon that's involved in these, you know, fossil fuel assets are not going to be able to be burned. And the question is, has the market taken that into account or not? Um, And we did an extensive search looking at um, how uh, news reports and discussions and and, uh, uh, pension fund and investor activism, you know, has affected the stocks of the American oil companies. And I think one of the things we found was that when investors 
look at the full gamut of the value of these these companies. Uh, they also take into account more complex stories than just the unburnable carbon story, because, of course, you've got companies like um, Chevron and Shell that have new carbon sequestration and storage projects for their oil sands fields in Canada and for their giant Gorgon project um, in Australia. Um, and the economics of those uh, carbon sequestration technologies is expensive, but when you take it over the 30-year life of an investment in, in fossil fuels, it's really not that um, not that burdensome. I mean, it's burdensome, but not enough to make the company completely uh, unprofitable. So the point is that I think the markets have cleared this idea that there's going to be some use of renewables in people's businesses. There's going to be some companies that are shift more heavily to natural gas because that has a lot less carbon content um, than oil. So so a mix of things, I think, are, are in the market, and that is why this sort of scare story that we're going to have this you know crisis in the value of these stocks is probably incorrect. We had John Hoffmeister, former president of Shell Oil, here a few months ago. He said that uh, a lot of the carbon would stay in the ground. It would not get burned. The stocks would be flat to down. That's basically a bet that there won't be real serious policy that's going to really keep the carbon in the ground. Is that right? Well, I think if the companies are betting on there not being really serious policy to keep the carbon in the ground, there I think they're incorrect. You know, and and I think that here in California we've been a little lucky uh, in terms of hurricanes and, and those kinds of natural disasters. Um, but you can hear from my accent that I'm originally from the East Coast. <laughs> and, and, and the impact of Hurricane Sandy was really pretty dramatic. And the impact of the hurricanes we've had in the Gulf Coast, you know, Rita and Katrina and the subsequent uh, Ike and those hurricanes, really had a big impact on how people think about resilience. So resilience of electricity, uh, resilience of the fuel system, um, you know, it's not acceptable to have uh, fuel companies uh, make announcements every hour that, yes, it's going to be another two weeks before anybody will be able to use their vehicles because we don't have the electricity or the logistics to get you your fuel. Like, those kinds of, of systems are not going to be accepted by the public, and we're going to have more and more need for resilient infrastructure because the climate challenge is going to worsen over time. And as it worsens over time, I think the political climate is really going to change. And, and you can see it starting to happen in these places that have been hit with these disasters. And, and in the end, right, if you really think about Silicon Valley and the improvements in the technologies for distributed energy, which is I'm going to, you know, you have my own little power source on my, on my site, whether I'm going to store electricity, but I'm going to generate my own electricity, whether it's with a fuel cell or some other kind of generation, maybe renewable energy like solar, uh, coupled with something, maybe traditional diesel generation, whatever it is. The reason these companies, this is the irony of the oil industry, the reason these companies had to go to distribute energy is because the traditional utilities and energy companies were not able to supply them with reliable electricity. And they can't have the chips, can't have to be cool, right? And the servers can't go down. And so people had to go to these technologies. But once we have these technologies, there is superior technology. You don't go back. Who's walking around now with a phone that's just a telephone? Nobody, <laughs> right? You're not going to go back. I mean, once somebody forces you to go to a smartphone, if that happens to you, like in my place of business, you know, I, there were things I had to do. So my point to you is, once you've used the superior technology, you're going to stick with it. Once people see, as they did in New Jersey, that towns that had their own generation systems, whether it was because they had some advanced green power plan or whether it's just by accident they had their own power station, those towns got their electricity back in a day or two days, mm-hmm. right? The people who are on the centralized grid, you know, two weeks, three weeks into the process, they're still without electricity, without heat. So I think that they're going to be the changes are going to be forced on us by the severe consequences of climate change. And as those become more apparent over time, uh, the public will become more conducive to a stronger climate policy. And you're seeing that in China. I mean, that is the irony. You're seeing it in China, where people are really suffering. Where in cities in China, you cannot go on side, where the impact of floods 
and natural disasters is having a huge toll, right? And, 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 and now the stability of the Chinese government is at more risk from environmental consequence than it is from even, um, even the traditional things like repression and the other things that people had thought might bring that government down. They are so concerned. Environmental issues are an emergency today in China. And here in the United States, we're a step ahead in terms of Clean Air Act and some of the other legislation that, that we've put forward, especially here in California. But in the end, we do not have a resilient fuel system. And the need for a resilient fuel system is what's going to get us to the right kind of climate legislation. Amy Jaffe is Executive Director of Energy and Sustainability at UC Davis. Uh, we're going to pause to include your uh, audience questions. The line starts over here. If you're on this side, we ask you to please go through that door. Come up and join us with uh, one one-part question. Um, <laughs> I'm here to help you with that. Uh, let's go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. I have this fantasy that uh, not much is going to happen until Elon Musk wins the Indy 500 with an electric vehicle. And I think that will eliminate 60 to 70 percent of the resistance to, to going toward the future is not oil. The future is sustainable energy. We all know that. We're just having trouble convincing the southeastern United States and, and the Central Valley. So what do you think about that idea? And do any of you know Elon Musk and get him started? I mean, if he can go to the, if he can go to space and back, he can certainly put a race car together that can take the Indy 500. And that will change Texas and that will change the southeastern United States. You know, the problem is Americans have range anxiety. The problem is not the performance of the car. The performance of these cars, even even not the Tesla, the performance of the other, you know, the Ford cars and, and the Vault and everything, their performance is outstanding, right? That eight-second pit stop at Indy becomes very challenging when you have to plug it in and wait, you know, for... Yeah. No. But electric cars, no one ever talks about this. Electric cars are more fun to drive. I drive a Leaf. Pure electric, it is more fun than a gasoline car. It is zippy. There are range issues, but they are fun, and they are fast, and they are cool. I think there's a lot that pop culture can do to, to, you know, a lot that they can do to sort of, yeah, on the messaging side, but also just on getting people, you know, people learn more about it. It sort of permeates culture a little bit more widely. But at the same time, there still are some roadblocks to folks, whether it's the anxiety part, but also in some ways the cost. You know, right now there are a series of programs and incentives to kind of help get some of those early technologies kind of over initial humps. And as you get those early adopters, a lot of that then helps permeate into pop culture. Your friend has one, you know, and you know someone who knows someone who has one. And it, it continues from there. But I think some combo of really introducing it into pop culture with some programs and incentives, like a number of them that exist in California, do help some of those early vehicles get over the hump. I think that the performance case for uh, electric or hybrid electric vehicles has pretty much been made. Um, Right now, I think it does come down to uh, largely a matter of cost. By and large, they do cost more still. That'll change. Um, If you look at some of the more recent polling from the the Public Policy Institute of California, for instance, when they go out and ask people uh, for your next car, uh, would you be inclined to buy an electric or a hybrid vehicle? A surprising proportion of them say yes. I'm seriously considering that. So, so I think one of the interesting uh, things that we've found at the Institute of Transportation Studies is that once people have the car, there's this other problem, which is what are the norms of using this car? So we all know when we go to the gasoline station, you have to stay in your car in line if, if you're waiting for fuel and you have to wait your turn in your car. But if I plug in my car, and I go into the grocery store, and somebody comes up and I'm already charged, can you unplug me, right? And, you know, what's the etiquette that goes with uh, <laughs> plugging and non-plugging in public stations? And that has not been worked out. So we here in the state of California are real pioneers in that regard. They're studying that where you are, right? Yeah, absolutely. The, the electric and, and car etiquette. If, if park and ride etiquette can be formed organically, <laughs> I think this one can. Right, yeah, so th- this, is, this is a interim challenge, but definitely uh, something that, you know, again, 
um, you know, sort of a hump that has to be gotten off I'll of confess, technology. I'll confess, I have unplugged other people once they're fully charged. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so I, I just want to make the, the broader point that this messaging um, is absolutely critical. I mean, uh, you know, the iPhone wasn't done by a policy mandate, right? It was done by you know, some innovative uh, – it, it was done by a whole chain of – a concert, you know, a concerted activity, group of activities, a portfolio of activities, if you will, none of which in that case were policy-driven. In energy, it's a little bit different because we have high, it's high capital costs. This is big money infrastructure, and this does require policy consistency over time. I would argue that California voters have uh, laid a nice foundation for having that policy consistency by, by voting over and over again for uh, environmental policies that enable us to project to the private businesses that actually are the marketplace that we're not going to change course 180 degrees. We're going to basically move in that direction. Um, But it is, uh, I think, really important to have policy and the broader marketplace, private businesses, profit motive, be on the same page about where we're going because the capital is largely going to come from the private sector. It, the, the state itself doesn't have, you know, we have, we can kind of prime the pump with incentive programs and um, statutory mandates and things like that. But basically, the big investment has to come from the private sector. And so those two things have to see things some, similarly, at least, in order to have that consistency and get those investments made. And then if it does result in, you know, a company winning the Indy 500, then that, that could be huge. I would say things like, you know, if you're going to, if you walk into your neighbor's house and they've, done an energy efficiency upgrade of their house. And they've reduced their energy consumption by 80%. And it's quiet in there, it's comfortable, there's no drafts, and you have all LED lighting, and you realize how wonderful it is. And that personal experience is something that policy can't make happen. It can encourage it. But it is you and the social relation that you have with your neighbor when you go over for dinner or whatever it is that, that helps change the culture and evolve us in that direction. And so those, you know, we can't underestimate. It sounds odd for a policymaker or, or, you know, a regulator to be talking about this, but it is, this is the kind of cultural shift that we need that I think if it's going to happen anywhere in the U.S., it's going to happen in California. But certainly this is the kind of cultural shift that once we have the technology, the business model, uh, you know, the the sort of uh, the things that have to be there just as a matter of course, then we need that that so those social processes to sort of finish the job and get the market transformed so that normal people like you and I, when we're going to do a kitchen upgrade, that we opt into doing the full upgrade of our house for energy. When we are looking at a car that we actually have on, on our landscape is one of these clean alternatives. And it, it all has to fit together. And so that's the challenge. And I think, uh, you know, it's part of a, having a... Um, having a, a mature economy that can actually offer those things and, and in, a, in a market-based economy actually make it happen. Uh, I feel relatively optimistic, but I think we're, uh, you know, we, we have to get to scale, and we're just on the front end of that. We're talking about uh, the top energy and climate highlights, headlines of and highlights of 2013 at Climate One. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, two things that I've heard and I don't know a whole lot about but would like to know more is about weakening of CEQA laws and also the lack of discussion about methane or harnessing biologically mm-hmm. produced methane, which we have lots of in Harris Ranch and other places, mm-hmm. they could s- somehow, if you develop that use that's destroying the ozone layers very much, um, if we could set the standard for the rest of the nation that is producing a lot of methane. Lauren, favor briefly, we have a few minutes left. Uh, Environmental Defense Fund is doing a lot of work on methane. Yeah, we're mostly focused, actually, um, with regards to methane, we're focused on being able to account for leakage throughout the entire um, system of, you know, basically acquiring and making natural gas. So that's really where our our interest is, is that if we are um, increasing our use of natural gas, are we making sure that the purpose of being able to retire um, coal-based power plants, coal-fired power plants, and begin a transition to cleaner fuels via natural gas. If methane is leaking from that whole cycle, then you basically do lose your the benefits of, of transitioning away from coal. So we are um, in the middle of a very large study looking at the entire value chain of natural gas production um, and consumption to see what that overall methane leak is across the country. The point being that that, that methane is, although there's, there's much more carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere, right. methane 
pound for pound is a much more potent greenhouse Significantly gas. Significantly so. Uh, anywhere from, what, 20 to 70, 70. times more, more potent. Um, and uh, Stanford just released a study last week, in fact, that uh, the uh, – the volume of, of methane emissions in, in the U.S. could be 50 percent higher than we thought. And there, it, it does Can actually matter. Quick, yes, quickly, then we we'll go to the next Okay. It, it does actually matter. A couple of percent swing in emissions, uh, in, in fugitive emissions either way, really matters from a carbon, uh, from a climate perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I did want to mention also, uh, you seem to be referring to combined heat and power, uh, which is taking advantage of landfill gas and other sources of methane and dairy farms and things like that. Um, uh, so biogas uh, to generate power either on the top of the cycle or on the bottom of the cycle. So you, gen- you, you need heat for your industrial process, and then you use the additional energy in that methane to generate electricity. The governor has aggressive goals for combined heat and power and, and scaling that up. Uh, and uh, regulatorily, it's a little bit complex, and there are a lot of jurisdictional issues and some you know, across parcel transportation of biomethane and that kind of stuff. There's, there are issues that definitely uh, are an impediment, but definitely that uh, scaling up of combined heat and power in the state is a policy goal already. Andrew McAllister is a commissioner of the California Energy Commission. Let's have our next question at Climate One. Welcome. Yeah, thank you. I just wanted to ask a couple of you to comment on um, what's being done and what the challenges are to make sure that low-income households don't bear the burden or don't get lost out in the clean energy transition. I think there's got to be a better way than just giving bill assistance. Um, mm-hmm. And I just want to hear what's what's the debate in California about how to how to make sure that happens. Andrew McAllister. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I'll, two things quickly. Uh, so California does have a very long history of of care rates. Uh, so lower income people can apply, and it is means tested, and they essentially get lower rates. So they get a discount on their electricity uh, price. Um, and I imagine, I believe that that will continue in some form. Uh, we are, in the next few years, going to be seeing an active discussion, um, largely within the Public Utilities Commission, about uh, rates and rate redesigns. Um, it's been, at least for residential sector, it's been put off uh, until 2018 or so. Um, but that care discussion will be uh, a Central part of those discussions because uh, the, the part of the part of the Lauren brought it up before the utility business model of the future is a big question. Uh, the utilities are pretty nervous that their revenue model uh, is a, is going to be outdated here pretty soon as we go to heavy distributed generation as people become more energy efficiency and actually energy efficient rather and use less energy. Um, uh, you know, on the other hand, we might see demand rising because of the electrification of the vehicle fleet. So there are lots of question marks, and, and uncertainty makes uh, corporations that are regulated monopolies extremely nervous. So, just as, a, just as a footnote to that, too, the, the revenue from the cap and trade program in California was exactly. supposed to be funneled directly back yeah. into uh, disadvantaged communities to help them with their pollution issues and with their environmental issues. Instead, it was diverted into the general fund for the well, time being. Some, the for the time home. being, there, there is a percentage of it is actually going to bill credits uh, to the people who paid into it through their, you know, that, I think that's not uh, fully going to satisfy you. <laughs> but um, certainly the in, in the program environment and the discussion we're having about how to improve energy efficiency going forward, um, the multifamily and low-income sectors are a critical part of that discussion because they're underserved. They have all sorts of sort of market barriers there that make it difficult to get into apartments and low-income buildings, multifamily generally, uh, to upgrade those and make them more energy efficient. But that's a really key part of the discussion. And there is, I think, general understanding in the policy community and at the agencies that the cap-and-trade revenues w- could be a really important contribution to making that happen in the, in the, in the building stock where low income is prevalent. It may even be in a, a Climate One program focused on that topic about the whole green move, not leaving behind yeah. certain certain people. Thank you for that question. Uh, we have time for one more audience question. Welcome. Hi there. My name is Lisa Hoyos. I'm the director and co-founder of an organization called Climate Parents. Um, I worked for a long time in the environmental and the labor movements, but sort of jumped over to the parent space because we feel like you have to sort of really grow the pie of who who optically is viewed as caring about climate and clean energy. And if we don't sort of mainstream it up and make it look like momhood and apple pie and dadhood and baseball, you know, we, we might not politically scale in the need science as we need to. So my question is, one thing we've worked on pretty hard is engaging parents along with allies like the Sierra Club and other groups 
to be involved in the front lines of some of these fights, like trying to stop coal exports in the in the Northwest, in the Pacific Northwest, but also um, Commissioner McAllister, as it relates to San Onofre, we are involved in Southern California um, with California Environmental Justice Alliance, with Sierra Club, and just trying to make sure we can go straight to renewables. I'm wondering um, what you see as the challenges to that view, but we're kind of gearing up to try to stop any new natural gas from coming online. Yeah. Quickly, and then we'll wrap it up. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great. I really appreciate your work um, at the Blue Green Alliance and, and elsewhere. Um, so, uh, yeah, difficult question. I mean, there obviously, what's that? No, I'm now I'm at Climate Yes, no, exactly. Oh, I, I, knew, I knew that you had moved. So, um, uh, the, the San Onofre is really, uh, the, the San Onofre going offline and being retired uh, is generating all sorts of interesting discussions, and I think it is an opportunity to see what's possible. Um, the, the utility there, Southern California Edison, has this idea of living pilots where they're going to really focus on the customer and try to really uh, do things much more quickly than, than maybe they're accustomed to in the program environment. Uh, but certainly having a broad group of stakeholders uh, pushing on the different issues there is important, and I'm really glad you're doing that. Uh, right now, the principles of the energy agencies have uh, committed to at least 50% what are called preferred resources, which are basically all the clean stuff, um, and uh, uh, with the hope that it can be more than that and the, and the sort of pending seeing it really go uh, deep and broad. Um, I, I think you know, we all want to see... Um, positive experience with demand-side resources, with uh, sort of putting storage, energy storage, which we haven't talked about today, strategically within the grid so that we can take advantage of all these intermittent renewables that are out there, whether they're local or whether they're far away and need to be brought in through transmission projects. Uh, so I think there are a lot of pieces to this puzzle, um, and, and certainly it's an opportunity to do some very important things for the state of California and demonstrate that it can be done. So right now we're at 50%. And, uh, you know, I understand you'll be there pushing for 100%. <laughs> we have to wrap it up. I want to end by asking each of you briefly what you do to manage your own personal carbon footprint. Amy Jaffe. Well, excellent. I just bought a C-Max Ford plug-in car. <laughs> which we know you love. <laughs> which we heard all about before. Okay. And I can, I can do my errands in Davis, California without resorting to gasoline. And I work in the West Village at UC Davis, which is a net zero uh, renewable energy city. Andrew McAllister, top that. All right. Uh, well, I just actually, I just bought a house in, uh, in Davis. Uh, we just moved to Davis with my family and I'm methodically working through my punch list. I have done all LED change outs in my lighting, first of all, and I've got my smart meter hooked up to my smart thermostats now and I'm able to do a whole bunch of cool analytics. The previous person that lived in my house, their average bill was $364 per month for electricity and gas, and mine is about 64 so far. So I'm getting down there. I'm going to eliminate energy efficiency. I'm going to do energy efficiency to the max, and then I'm going to uh, potentially put solar on to sort of uh, go the distance there. But uh, little by little. We are a two Prius family, at least. <laughs> Plug-in Priuses? No, no, no. They're old. Ah, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lauren Faber? Well, I have not owned a car since 2004. <laughs> There's a cultural change. I have, I have been lucky enough to live in cities with great exactly. public transportation, and I get to know exactly. both the bus and underground systems well. So I will say that. That's not available <laughs> to everybody, um, certainly if I was not necessarily home in Los Angeles. But I also spend a fair amount of time on the sort of education side, I would say, that I use sort of my grandmother and my brother as the, you know, does it pass the smell test? Are they going to be able to understand it? Do they get it? And would they be able to get on board? So that's what I do when I go home to visit family. Craig Miller. Well, I'm going to look like the skunk here. Um, <laughs> I, I do drive a hybrid car, but I drive everywhere because I have to from where I live. And the big challenge for me is I live in a condominium complex, and trying to take individual steps as a homeowner, can't put on solar panels, can't get a plug-in car, can't do any of this stuff unless you get everybody to do it. Uh, I'd like more. I'd like more thought, more policy to be applied to how to to, to that problem. People who live in high-density housing. Big, big part. Uh, I drive a Leaf, have solar panels, <laughs> hey, a lot of LEDs, right. which I put in my will because they're going to they cost a fortune. They're going to be around a long time. We have to end it there. Uh, our thanks to our guest today, Lauren Faber, West Coast Political Director at the Environmental Defense Fund, Craig Miller, Science Editor at KQED, Amy Jaffe is Executive Director of Energy and Sustainability at UC Davis, and Andrew McAllister is a Commissioner at the California Energy Commission. I should note that we invited for this program uh, people from the California Manufacturers and Technology Association, other business interests to be the voice of energy suppliers here. Didn't work this time. We include them 
over time. Thanks to everyone listening to Climate One today. I'm Greg Dalton. Thanks for coming.